Hello and welcome to Chino y Chicano. I'm Matt Chan, the Chino. I'm Enrique Cerna, the Chicano. Well, recently we talked with Dr. Julian Perez of CIMAR Community Health Center about COVID-19's impact on communities of color and also what he experienced after contracting the virus. Well, today, Matt, we're going to talk with Jessica Esparza, a registered nurse who works in the ICU with COVID patients at Central Washington Hospital in Wenatchee. Jessica is someone you know, you've known for a long time. You've documented her journey as a dreamer. Right. I've known her since uh, 2013. I produced a documentary called Latinos, a Changing Face of Washington while I was at uh, KCTS. She was uh, one of the people I featured as a young woman who was undocumented. Uh, she was brought to this country unknowingly by her her mother uh, to uh, reconnect with the family and her father in the Quincy area. She didn't know that she was undocumented, didn't find that out until she was in high school, really, and went through a lot of a lot of difficult times. And she's a, just a tremendously bright person. So I caught up with her when she was uh, getting ready to go into a nursing program at Big Bend Community College in Moses Lake. We talked about the challenges of her wanting to become a nurse and yet also being undocumented. Uh, she became a DACA recipient, uh, allowed her to work uh, here in the U.S. It also allowed her the opportunity to go on and become a registered nurse, which she is in uh, Central Washington and Central Washington Hospital, Wenatchee, in the ICU, putting her life on the line every day as an ICU nurse dealing with COVID patients. So it's a tremendous story. But what we're going to hear from her today is really what's it like working in those circumstances of being on the front lines during this time of this pandemic. It's it's quite a story. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be fascinating to see firsthand what it's like in the hot zone. And for us to understand that and uh, what uh, people like Jessica, uh, healthcare workers that uh, are there every day and at the same time <laughs> dealing with people that uh, they're there in some cases because they, they just haven't listened to what's necessary to take care of themselves. So Jessica has a, a tremendous story to tell, and uh, not only from what she has been doing uh, as an ICU nurse, but also what she faces as a uh, young woman who is a DACA recipient wanting to become an American. Jessica Esparza, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So what is your life like these days? We've been in COVID now for uh, a little over a year. And I know the, from the beginning, you actually moved into the ICU right when COVID hit. Correct. It has been quite the roller coaster. So I left my job on the medical oncology unit uh, December of 2019. And my internship in the ICU lasted till about the middle of March. And then we saw our first patient that had COVID right before I finished my internship. So it has definitely been quite the learning experience to be in the ICU with COVID. Wow, that's amazing. So you, so your entry into nursing, the professional field, is really a COVID experience. Well, I had been a nurse for four years, but my specialty was medical oncology. Um, so I didn't know how to manage ventilators and manage people that, you know, were very critically uh, ill. Um, so, yeah, moving to the ICU kind of was a different experience completely with COVID. And in 
the midst of this, you're really not sure just how uh, contagious it is. Uh, you're finding out along the way. So you're having a lot of learning experiences uh, as you're treating patients and also realizing that this could possibly be deadly for you. Correct. I, I still remember very vividly my first COVID patient and how scared they were and how scared I was, you know, and how we had to trust this N95 mask and this shield to keep us safe. Uh, thankfully, I only live with my husband and that made me feel a little bit more comfortable that, you know, we were young, we were healthy and we could isolate ourselves if it came down to it. And I was very thankful that I was not longer living with my parents who are in their 50s, are Latinos. My dad has hypertension. Um, so I was very thankful to not have anyone around me. So uh, what, what is, what's different from the early stages when you were dealing with COVID to what it is now? I think what is different has been the teamwork and learning how we can help these people. Uh, from what I've seen, we have learned that proning patients can really help them get better faster. Um, I don't think at the beginning- and What is proning patients? Oh, what does that mean? Proning, so what happens is that our patients that are intubated get put on their tummy. We kind of call it tummy time. So they lay on their stomach so that way their lungs can expand and they can get more oxygen and we can recruit as many alveoli. Those are like the little pockets that you have in your lungs that um, get the oxygen, breathe out the CO2. So when we prone them, we can recruit as much of those and hopefully improve the patient's respiratory status. Um, it is very heavy work. It takes about eight people to prone a patient safely. And as you can imagine, um, some of our patients can be up to like 250 pounds or 300 pounds. Um, there's, there's some limitations to when we can prone people um, for their safety and our safety. But as someone who's 5'2 and only, you know, like 120 pounds, it has been quite, quite a hard work for me. That's what's been different that, you know, we are more proactive about treating these patients, doing the proning, making sure that they have steroids on board. Um, you know, we have tried different medications, as you guys have heard over the last couple months to see what works better. Um, but yeah, I think what has gotten better as well is the teamwork. Uh, I really like working in the ICU and to see how we have grown over the last couple of months of helping each other out and always being there for each other because it's kind of what we have. So when you get to work, take us through the process of getting ready. Yeah. Uh, do, do you have to like, ma well, I'm sure you're masking up. You're going to have a mask to begin with, but to protect yourself. What's the other thing? Right. So when I get to work, I get to change into scrubs that the hospital provides. I can also wear my scrubs, but I can change into the scrubs that they provide. We get in a huddle. So the people that are taking over for day shift get all together. Of course, everyone's wearing masks, uh, social distance as much as possible. And we're going to get a recap of what happened on uh, night shift, you know, who's sick, who is our provider? How many people do we have? Um, how many people are we proning? And all of that. From there, I go to my assignment, which can be one to two patients. And sometimes I get to be on the cohort side, which is the COVID side. And sometimes I get to be on the clean side. Uh, in the cohort side, we get an update from the nurse who had them during night shift. You know, how they did, what's going on, how long have they had COVID, what have we tried, um, what other medications are involved. 
sometimes these patients have to be sedated and paralyzed, um, which has been quite a learning experience for me because there has been weeks that I have not had a patient who can talk back to me, wow. um, which is interesting. And I used to work night shift. Uh, when I went to the ICU, I had to work night shift for about six months, and it was all throughout COVID. And it was very dehumanizing for me when I had patients who were prone for weeks on weeks. And I remember one instance uh, specifically where I never met this patient's face. Like I had no idea how they looked like because they were prone, I want to say for like three or four weeks. And that's how long I care for them. And I had no idea how they looked like. Do you have all of the gear that you need now? I know that uh, I talked to you you know, when you were first going through all of this. And again, that having enough, the mass, the other things you needed, you were, you were in short supply. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. For a, for a time there, um, we were, uh, short on the N95 mask. So we had to reuse our mask. Uh, but thankfully we were able to get enough supply. So now we get a clean N95 every shift that we work. So I wear, when I, when I get ready to go into my patient's room, uh, of course I sanitize my hands. I put on my N95 and then sometimes to be extra protective, I cover it with the re regular surgical mask. Uh, I put on a face shield. I put on a like a yellow gown, an isolation gown. I'm sure you guys have seen pictures of those. Uh, and then I put on two extra pairs of gloves and then kind of like cross my fingers and make sure that I'm as well protective as I can be uh, going into the rooms. Sometimes you can be in a room up to two hours, depending on how sick your patient is. Like if you have to titrate medications, if you have to clean them up, you know, if there was any stool, any urine. Um, I remember there was one time that my patient's blood pressure was very low and I was in a room for like two plus hours. Um, and then there was another instance where we had several people that were prone. So we would get ready, go into a room and then help turn everyone. And by the time that it was over, it was close to two hours and I came out and, you know, I have all of these markings from my N95. And then it's time again to get geared up so that we can do another turn every two hours. So During the, the pandemic, there was a disproportionate number of Latinos that fell ill. I'm sure you're called upon them because you're bilingual Correct. to communicate with them. What was their mental state? Did they understand what was going on? Did they know how they contracted it? I mean, did they know what was going on and, and how did you deal with all that? So a lot of the patients that I have taken care of have been intubated at the point that they are with us. So they are unable to talk. Um, but then there is a point where, um, you know, either they're conscious and they're still intubated and I have, you know, communicated with them um, and tried to use my Spanish to calm them down and, you know, let them know what's happening. Because I can only imagine how it feels to be in this space with a tube down your throat and not really understand what's going on around you. Um, so I have done a lot of that. Um, I have also, you know, sat with patients who are very anxious after getting extubated to try to, again, call them, call them uh, and make sure that they don't become so anxious that they have to get intubated again because they can't breathe. Um, but I feel like what I have done a lot of is talking to families, you know, and reassuring them that someone who speaks their language is next to them. And, you know, I always try to use encouraging words, even if, you know, I can't, we, 
We think that the patients who are intubated and sedated can still hear us. Um, so therefore, you know, when we talk to them, we try to keep them reassured of what's happening. We try to tell them what we're doing before we do it. Um, so I always, when I go into my patient's room and they're either English or Spanish speaking, it doesn't matter. You know, I always kind of try to like get them like, hey, you can do this. Like we have all these people cheering for you, you know, um, pull through or just like little encouraging words that I can get. Because I can only imagine, you know, how I must feel to be in that position. And, and again, I relate that to their families as well, that, you know, I'm here and I am taking the best care that I can. You know, I'm holding their hand, I'm brushing their hair, you know, I'm doing those little things um, to make sure that they still feel like real people. Now, you're in Wenatchee at uh, Central Washington Hospital. Pretty good sized Latino population over there. Many people obviously work in agricultural areas there as well. What do you think is a percentage of the Latinos that you've had to treat? I know for a time it was up to like 80%. And then over the, the holiday season, it was kind of 50-50. Um, so I think over the last couple months, we have seen more of the Caucasian population also being affected. And you know, I don't know, I'm not a scientist, of course, but I don't know if that had to do part with the holidays and people getting together um, and all of that. Um, and, you know, again, Latinos, I feel like they were more heavily affected because a lot of these people don't have insurance. They're not going to the hospital to get checked for their diabetes. They don't know that they have high blood pressure. They don't know that they have kidney disease. Um, and of course, you know, they live in multi-generational homes or again, like many people do not have the option to work from home because they're either working in the fields or working other positions where that's not really a thing. Do you think you, they understand how to protect themselves better now that we're further into this? I think so. I hope so. I don't know, to be honest with you. It has been hard for me to log into my social media every weekend and still see, you know, young people with, of course, their families still having get togethers, um, especially during the holiday season. You know, that makes like no sense to me. And I think it has to do with being privileged to not have been affected by it is what I think it comes down to. I don't know. I, I know that we have like a provider here in the Wenatchee area, Dr. Bodell. Um, she is a Latina uh, doctor and she has been the face of, you know, making sure that Latinos understand what's happening, how to protect themselves and how to protect others. And she has, you know, done a lot of interviews and has done a lot of things. Um, but we're still seeing people be affected. So I don't know that our numbers have been decreasing. But I think sometimes also people get tired of the situation and they think that they are immune, invisible, and they just, they go for it and they take risks. But as a young person, I don't think it's worth it for me to take risks to then, you know, infect my loved ones. Do you think that some people have been afraid to come in for treatment because of their immigration status? You know, I, I don't doubt that. That is something that the hospital doesn't ask about and... Sometimes the only way that we hear it is if like social work says, oh, the patient does not have any insurance because of their immigration status. And that's the only time that sometimes I'll hear about it because, of course, you know, I don't care if someone has papers or not. We're going to treat them the same. Um, you know, we we see their color, but, you know, we don't worry about what's you know happening besides that. But, you know, I would imagine so. I would imagine people would be scared of the cost of, you know, 
what would happen to their family and all of that. It's interesting that in the midst of all of this, you are also dealing with your own immigration status. You're a, you're a DACA recipient. Um, I know that uh, you had been intently watching the Supreme Court to see how they were going to rule on DACA. They ended up uh, upholding DACA. And I imagine that 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 took a little bit of stress off you. It really did. You know, it was interesting to be worrying about so many things at once. Uh, I feel like last year was just chaos. You know, if I had to describe it in one word, uh, it felt that my status was always up in the air. Um, I had no idea if I was going to continue to have a work permit and therefore continue to have a job. And I couldn't imagine not being able to help others with my skills because of my legal status. I think that, you know, felt silly um, the, that I had to worry about me having a permit to therefore care for people that were very sick throughout this whole time. Um, I think since, you know, the last couple of days since this new presidency came on, I have felt a sense of relief and, you know, the fear about my work permit is not in the back of my mind 24-7. You're an essential worker. I am. <laughs> the ultimate essential worker, let's face it. Correct, yeah. Not, not sure that I you know, wanted to have that title. You're in an area where there are a number of people who are don't, still believe that COVID isn't a thing. Right. Um, you know, they don't wear masks. And, and let, let's face it, a lot of them are white people and Trump supporters. Um, and they come in sick. I've heard, we've all heard stories in the media where they just... You tell them they have COVID and they say it can't be. Have you experienced that at all? Um, again, I feel like a lot of the people that I have care for are already pretty sick and again, intubated and sedated that I don't get to have those conversations with them. I have heard stories and, you know, I have gotten report on patients that other people have told me, oh, you know. They didn't think that they had COVID or, you know, they didn't believe it was real and now they're here. But of course, we treat people the same. You know, at the end of the day, we want to make sure that the end goal is that they make it home hopefully better than how they came in. Um, but it has been upsetting. You know, I had to unfollow a lot of the social media accounts around the area, like regarding news, um, because if they posted something about COVID and I would read the comments, it would get to me. You know, it would be upsetting to read all of these people's comments that COVID wasn't real, that it was a hoax, uh, that again, the government was trying to, I don't know, do something to us, or that it was just a flu. And to read that either after I got off of work or when I was at work, taking care of very sick people, it was very upsetting. And it took everything from me to not be unprofessional and reply to those comments. <laughs> What's it like for people that don't, they just think, well, it's a really bad flu. You're probably going to be, at this period of time, you've probably lost more patients than a lot of health workers will ever loss, lose in their lifetimes. What's it like to deal with that on a daily basis for you? So people understand the suffering and the pain and the emotions that are involved with all of this. You know, it's upsetting in many ways. I feel that losing patients is very hard, but also keeping patients alive who are already not there anymore. So, for example, those patients that the family is not ready to let them go. I feel like that's the real suffering for a lot of the healthcare providers 
because we're caring for this person and we know that their quality of life is not good. We know that we're doing more damage than good. So I think for me, it's harder to have those conversations with the family members that are not ready to let go. And of course, you know, I've never been in their position and I try my best to understand. And of course, we respect their wishes. But I feel like that has been the hardest part when, you know, we have had patients be there for months on months, not getting any better. Um, but losing patients on the daily has also been really stressful. Um, it feels that we're not helping. It feels that it's it's just a cycle, you know, like you come into work, you have a patient and then you come back like a week later and you're like oh we're so and so and they're like oh well they didn't make it and it gets you because this is people that you have taken care of for weeks you know this is people that you talk to their families or they have zoom calls and like you hear all the encouraging words that they have to say you know all of the things that they're saying to their loved ones through a zoom call um because now they're here and you know they can't even get to see their loved one and I think what's also has been hard is that when people have passed, um, there hasn't been family there for them. Um, that might be because of you know where the family is located. We do allow some visitors um, depending on the conditions, but it's a very limited amount as well since we don't want to expose as much people. But I think that has been the hard part. I know many of my coworkers um, will sit with the patient when they're going to pass till they pass because they want to make sure that this person does not die alone. And like, how do you take that home and try to explain it to like, you know, your family that you saw someone almost die alone and, you know, you hope that doesn't happen to anyone, but you know that it's going to happen again next week. How do you deal with this? Because this is, this is hard. I mean, just listening. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, you know, it has, it has been, um, it's been hard. Um, I did seek some uh, therapy a couple weeks ago, especially during the election, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so I have just, you know, trying, I've been trying to learn how to cope with all of it. You know, I've been trying journaling. Um, of course, you know, I talked to my coworkers about it since we're all going through all of this. Um, and it's, again, it's so hard for me as an extrovert because, you know, I want to be out and about. I want to talk to as many people as possible, see my friends, see my family. And that's not really a possibility at the moment. Um, but I just try to take it day by day. And, you know, whenever those situations arise, I just do my best and I'm human, you know, I will call families and I will cry on the phone with them, you know, I'll tell them about their loved one and say, yeah, you know, I brushed their hair and, you know, we give them a bath bath and they look really good today, you know, all of those things. Um, I remember a couple, I think this was like a couple months ago, we had a patient and I braided their hair and then the family had a Zoom call and like, Every time that a new family joined in, there was a specific family member that would say, hey, did you guys notice like the nurse uh, braided their hair? Like it looks so good. And then again, it would happen. So like I was in there in the room. So I think that made my heart happy that one little thing, you know, that I took, you know, whatever, 20 minutes to like do their hair made such a big difference for their family. 
to know that they were well cared for. You said that you're an extrovert. Um, so being <laughs> locked down when you're not working, I imagine it's tough. Uh, and I understand that you actually go back to work so that just you could be around people. Is that right? Correct. So I married an introvert and he's amazing. I love him, of course. Uh, but he he thrives in all of you know this chaos. He can go play video games and be him and that's great. But I can, you know, I will do the basic things. I'll watch Netflix, I'll try to read a book, I'll work out and then realize that I still have like eight more hours in the so I have started to pick up a little bit over time just so that I can go do something and, you know, feel helpful and not feel stuck at home because, you know, I can only socialize so much at this point through Zoom and text and all of that. How do you feel about people that still don't seem to get it, that this is, uh, this is a pandemic, that it's so important to wear a mask, to socially distance, to wash your hands, all those things we hear over and over. And yet they just refuse to comply or, or help out. It's very upsetting. You know, sometimes I wish I was more of an aggressive person. Like if I saw someone at the store either not wearing their mask or wearing it incorrectly, I think that's what gets me the most. I wish I was... I don't even know, brave, strong, uh, to tell them, um, you know, hey, like you need to wear your mask correctly, but I just don't have it in me. I don't, I don't know what it is. Probably the fact that, you know, I'm five, two and brown. There's that. Uh, <laughs> but I just wish like, how can I say this? I wish I was a Karen, but in a positive yeah. way, if you know what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah right. <laughs> like, I don't know what the terminology for a positive Karen would be, uh, uh, <laughs> but something along. So what I, what I actually did last week, and my husband thought that I wouldn't do it, is I order a mask that says it goes over your nose, too. Um, and he said, he's like, oh, that's passive aggressive. And I'm like, I'm ready to be passive aggressive. Like I am ready to be done with this, you know, because the pandemic has affected us, of course, in many ways. But if I have to be selfish, uh, you know, our wedding was nothing than what we planned for. We still haven't had a honeymoon. We haven't really traveled because of course we want to protect everyone and we feel guilty. We're, we're not going to go ahead and have a honeymoon, uh, during this time, um, so yeah, that, that is my current way of being passive aggressive. Every time that I go out and about, I am wearing my, it goes over your nose too, mask. Yeah. Well, Matt can help you learn how to be aggressive. He's unfiltered most of the time. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so have you, have you been vaccinated? I have, yes. Okay. And you've had both shots? Correct. Okay. Does that give you some peace of mind? I think it does. Yeah, definitely. You know, I was just thinking about it, um, you know, going into the rooms, I'm not as worried that I'm going to catch COVID, which I think it's still very impressive that, you know, working around COVID and been around it for almost a year, I still have not caught it. Um, I have been tested for times that I have had like a sore throat um, or just felt like a bus hit me. Uh, and all of the times it has been negative, thankfully. Um, but it does make me feel more comfortable to have the vaccine um, just in case, you know, for any reason, I want to see my parents. We still wear a mask. If we go out to my parents' house, we wear a mask. Um, we eat, you know, away from them because um, we still want to love our family as much as possible. But we see them like 
once every couple months and it's usually after I have been off for several days so that I can kind of keep an eye on myself and see if I have any symptoms. Uh, but I think with the vaccine, I feel a lot better. Um, I hope that you know people continue to be vaccinated, but I feel like there's still a big amount of people that don't want to do that either. I want to be. I just need to get an appointment so I can be. But you know, I'm working on that. I'm working. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, most peop- sane people want to be vaccinated. Right. Yeah. How about your husband? Is he does he have an opportunity to be vaccinated because of the work you do? Mm. Not quite yet, no. I think he works in the like food science, agricultural area, so hopefully he would be on the next round. Um, but no, we actually, uh, you know, he, we actually think that he's lucky because I get to be the one that's vaccinated first. So I am the guinea pig, I'm the trial, um, and therefore he's kind of protected. But even though I am probably the one that is more at risk than him, than he is to get it. So as we start to wrap things up here what is it that you want to say to people out there uh, about the pandemic and and what you need from them as as someone who puts their life on the line uh i need people to take this seriously wear their masks social distance Uh, of course wash your hands if you're not doing that then we have a problem um and of course you know don't act like you're privileged. If, if you have not been affected by this, you know, you might be very lucky, but there is a huge possibility that you could be potentially affected at some point. The way that I think about it is that all of us have someone who's at risk, you know, someone who is either elderly, someone who has high blood pressure or kidney disease or any comorbidities someone who's immunosuppressed, all of us, if we look around us, we have someone who is at risk. So why can't we take this seriously for them? You know, why can't we protect our grandparents, you know, our parents, uh, or even our kids? You know, why why can't we step forward and do that for all of us? Um, I think it's hard for me to understand the people that are still not taking seriously. Uh, but if I put myself in the, their place again, I consider that they probably have not been affected yet. Thank you so much for those words. And thank you for everything that you do. You're really appreciated. You know, as someone who's seen you from the time that you wanted to be a nurse, you became a nurse. Now what you're doing, you're, you're truly an inspiration, I think, for uh, so many people out there, particularly young people of color. Um, thank you, Jessica, for everything you do. You take care of yourself. Thank you so much. We want to hear from you. Reach out to us on Twitter at Enrique Cerna and at Lofonland for me, Matt Chan. You can also email us at chinoichicano at gmail.com and check out our Chino Ichicano page on Facebook. Our theme music was composed and performed by Antonio Gomez. You can find the Chino Ichicano podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and other favorite podcast platforms. Please take a listen, download, subscribe, and give us a review. If you'd like to watch our conversations, we're posting them to YouTube. Go to search and type in Chino y Chicano. I'm Matt Chan, the Chino. I'm Enrique Cerna, the Chicano. Stay safe, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and wear your mask. We'll talk more later. (laughs) 